Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Glad you came out to uh, this Resurrection Sunday. Glad you're here at City of Hope Church. We're glad that you uh, came to be with us this morning. So listen, I'm going to just go ahead and jump right into it this morning. I've got an interesting message for you. I know obviously on Easter we celebrate the resurrection, but one of the things that we do uh, that's, that, that, that's most importantly that I like to do is I like to zoom back kind of on the bigger picture of what's really going on in this message and in the story in the scripture. And so the title of my message this morning is The Death That Crushed the Serpent's Head. And they gave me light right then. The Lord just said, let there be light. Praise God. I'm glad. All right. So the death that crushed the serpent's head. Now, here's the thing about Easter. Every year I was talking to my mom yesterday about this. And uh, every year during Easter, I don't know what you think about, but, but I'm a little bit weird. I found this out years ago, but I have a little bit of a fascination with just life and existence and even death, strangely enough. And every Easter, I think about death a lot because it is the time that we celebrate the fact that Jesus has overthrown death. But I start to think about it. I think about how it impacts people. I think about people that have lost loved ones. And I think about the things that so many people are going through. And see, every time, here's the thing, the greatest emergency in life. Anytime somebody calls me and there's an emergency, my first thought is, uh-oh, somebody may be about to die. Sadly, that's, that's the issue as a pastor. When somebody calls you, you, you assume the worst case scenario. And for human beings, what is worst case scenario? It's death. And so when something happens, when somebody gets sick or when somebody is on the verge of death, the question we always ask is what happened? What happened to cause this death? Was it cancer? Was it old age? What happened that brought about this death? But the the question that we rarely ask is what is the cause behind the cause of death? Why do people die in the first place? Why do good people die? Why does anything die? Why does death even have to happen? Why is it even a thing? Because every single one of us, when we experience it, it hurts very bad and we recognize just when we face it that something has gone completely wrong in our world. Would you say amen to that this morning? And it causes us to question these things and, and we wrestle with it. I remember as a kid, I was thinking about this and, and I remember as a kid because what, you, know, you wonder maybe even when you start wrestling with this reality of life and death and Growing up, I don't remember thinking much about it, but I remember specifically uh, when I was a teenager, the first time that I wrestled with death, one of my dad's very best friend, his name was Gene. And growing up, man, he was, just, he was just a guy that was always there. He was a Christian man. He fought in the Vietnam War. He had a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of stuff in his past, but he met Jesus. And you could tell that his life was really transformed. And I remember he'd drive me around his little Toyota, and he had a Yoda sitting on the dash. You know what I'm talking about? And he had a, he had a Jesus in the, in the mirror. And I remember a couple of times specifically, when I was just a little boy, he pulled over on the side of the road while we were driving, eating ice cream, and he looked me in the eye. And and it was the first person that ever really looked at me this way. And he said, listen, if you ever need anything, you know that I'm here for you. And he made me respond to that. And as a kid, I didn't really know how to respond to that. but, but, But it impacted me because when I was around that man, I felt a sense of peace and trust. And here's the thing. He got lung cancer. And when I was a teenager, he died. And it messed with me so bad that I sort of just pushed it off and I said, I don't really want to experience this. I don't want to feel this. I numbed myself to it and I actually chose to not go to his funeral, which I felt terribly guilty about. But I remember sitting in my my dad's basement whenever the funeral was going on just crying because I had all of a sudden for the first time in my life actually really experienced this sense of loss. And then I started thinking about death. And, you know, I remember that when I was a kid in in middle school, there there was a teacher that I had. He read these comics 
every Sunday or every 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 morning. And, and one of the comics that he read was this Calvin and Hobbes. I don't know if you've seen it in the paper. Calvin and Hobbes is like a little boy, six-year-old boy, and he's got a he's got a tiger. But there's one specifically where a dead bird shows up on Calvin's lawn. And he looks at this dead bird and he starts philosophizing with his tiger, which is what most six-year-old boys do, right? And he starts to say, look at this dead bird. It must have hit a window or something. He said, look how beautiful it is and look how delicate it is. And he said, you know, I mean, the thing about it is, is you never really think about how, how great a gift life really is until you face death like this. And he says, isn't it, isn't it bad that we don't, we don't think about it and see the wonder of the world? And, and then you notice that nature's just so brutal and, and, and all of these things are going on and death is just mysterious and we don't really understand it. He said, I don't know. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll know more about it as we get older. And his tiger says, no doubt. And then they go up under a tree and they're sitting and they're watching the other birds fly over their head in the last scene you see there. And the inference is that all of these birds that are currently flying overhead are going to ultimately meet the same fate as that dead bird in his lawn. And see, on a given enough timeline, on a long enough timeline, the fact of the matter is every single one of us are going to face death and the, and the survival rate for all of us is zero, isn't it? But we don't want to think about that. And that's what Calvin says. He says, if you had to think about this all the time, it would be hard to go on in daily life. It would be a challenge. It would be a difficulty. And so we all have ways of wrestling with this idea of death and the world has ways of wrestling with this idea of death and understanding it. Some of you, you may know the comedian Ricky Gervais, right? He's a funny dude. He's an outspoken atheist. Here's what he said about death. He said, let me go to it. He said, we have the same life cycle as any other animal. Our parents mate, we're born, we grow, we mate, our parents die, all of our friends die, and then we die. Happy Easter. <laughs> and... Here's the thing about that is if you don't believe in a God, you don't believe in an afterlife. I mean, that's pretty much like if you if you remove God from the equation, that's he's right, isn't he? I mean, that's the reality of what we all face. This is we got a lifespan of about 70 years old and then we're dealing with this. And here's the thing. Nobody likes to talk about death. I get it. I don't like funerals. I don't like that stuff. And we've all lost people and been through pain and suffered these things. But as Christian believers, the reason one of the main reasons we celebrate this day is because it reframes our whole worldview. It changes the way we look at everything. And as Christians, we actually have a valid reason to speak about death regularly, but speak about it in a different way because we have a King and a Lord who actually entered into death but defeated it. And that's why we proclaim He is not there. He's not in the tomb. He is risen. He has defeated death. And so we get to look at it slightly different. But I want to go back to the very beginning because He doesn't just overthrow death, but He crushes the serpent's head the scripture says and in Genesis chapter 1 let's look at it let's go back to the very beginning of the story we're going to do a little bit of a Bible study this Easter but it says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now this is interesting because in the beginning when God creates, I would assume there, there was nothing there and then He creates. But when He creates, it says that it was empty. Now there's a very specific uh, Hebrew word and if you're looking for a tattoo, that'd be a good one, but it's tohu abohu, right? 
And that's a really cool word, but that phrase is used several times in the Old Testament and it refers to a desert wasteland. Literally, the translation of it is waste and wild. And what he's trying to make the point of and what most scholars say is that when God created humanity, he didn't just put them in a, in a, in a perfect creation all over, but he put them in a perfect space in the middle of a war zone in the middle of a place where there was waste and wild, and he called them to be his co-laborers, to partner with God as his image bearers, to expand the goodness of God and the kingdom of God from one place all throughout creation. That was their mandate. And that's why it goes on to say in Genesis 1.28 that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And notice what he says here. Fill the earth and subdue it. This is a word that throughout Scripture even is used as a warfare term. It is kabosh. It is to conquer or force into subjection. And then he uses another word and tells them that they are to rule over creation, which is another warfare term that means to have dominion, rule, or dominate. So my question is, is if I'm reading that and I'm a Hebrew and I know what the language means, what kind of war has broken out in the cosmos to cause God to tell humanity that they're going to have to subdue creation, get a hold on it, and rule over it? I'm thinking, I thought you created this thing perfect. Like, why do we got to go to war in the middle of something? And he goes on and you get a little bit more information concerning the whole thing. Here's another clue in Genesis 2. He said, the Lord God took the man, verse 15, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice what he says. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So he's saying, man, the stakes are high in this situation. There's a reality out there that is beyond just this perfect state. There are possibilities beyond because there are forces of evil at work. Now at this point, we don't really know what the forces of evil are. All we know up to this point is that there was a great waste and wild and there was darkness over the earth that God spoke and said, let there be light. And he did that before there was ever even a sun. Now think about this because God is trying to open something and in Genesis 3 you know this story. Like I said, we're going to read a lot of Scripture this morning, but notice. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit, eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. And here's the thing. We know th this story. And if you've never read this story before, you're thinking, man, what in the world is a serpent doing talking in the first place? And if you're a Christian and you grew up hearing this story, the question is, not just why is the serpent talking, but why is he in a perfect garden, supposedly? How did he even get here? Where did he show up? Where is his origins? Where is this serpent even from in the first place? And Tim Mackey says it like this. He says the Bible doesn't say how or why this thing even got in the garden. It just presents the snake as this creature who is in rebellion against God and wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path toward death. So whatever this snake is, it is the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. 
And so you know the story. We buy into that lie. Satan comes and says, listen, you know what God is holding out on you guys? He's lying to you. He's not as good as you think he is. And matter of fact, you know how you would be better off is if you would just reject that God. You can become your own God and decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. And Adam and Eve say, that's a good idea. I think I'll take a bite into that. And humanity out the course of human history continues to bite into that idea that we in and of ourselves can be our own gods and we can reject out the rule and reign of God in our own lives and our lordship. And so all of a sudden sin enters in and because of that sin you see sickness and death and abuse and neglect and hatred and all of these things infecting the world and ultimately the end of all of that is what? Death. We all face literally our physical bodies dying and us, what it seems, ceasing to exist. But see, God gives a promise right in the middle of this. And He says, there's going to be a guy that comes. And He's going to come as a son of Eve. And He's going to be a serpent crusher. In Genesis 3.15, God gives the first promise. And He gives the promise to Satan himself. And He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he says, I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and hers instead of his, because we know that Jesus did not have an earthly father. He came from a woman that was a virgin born of the seed of the Holy Spirit. But here's what he says, and this is the the, the crux of my message. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now imagine hearing that if you're Satan. Like, I'm looking out for this dude. You know what I'm talking about? I'm looking for the serpent crusher to show up because God has given me a promise, and I'm crazy enough to believe that somehow I can thwart this thing. This is what Satan is thinking. And so he's looking. And here's the thing. This Genesis, this book was written 2,000 years before Jesus came. And it was written about a story that happened even thousands of years before that. So you're looking across this timeline and all of these things are taking place and the serpent crusher is not showing up. God calls out His people Israel. They're failing morally. They're, they're falling. There's death and there's sickness and there's plague and there's war and all of this evil occurring over and over and over again. And we understand that this warfare is taking place right in the middle. And here's, that's my point, essentially, is that when humanity comes into this place, we are born into the middle of a war zone, into a cosmic conflict that's been going on since the beginning, even before we drew a breath. And it continues to go on. And we're facing battles of it right now in our own lives. Now, if you were in that time living, and I'm getting a little bit deep here and then we'll move through, but in in that time, if you lived in the ancient Near East, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters because they saw the waters as the place where evil dwelt, where the cosmic powers were. And this is why in Scripture you see it all the time. Psalm 29, 3 and 4 says what? The voice of the Lord is where? It's over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. He's saying this God of glory has power over the darkness and the powers that rule and reign on earth. And he says the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. In Psalm 74, verse 10, it says, How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. Notice what he says. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. I said earlier, man, this sounds like a metal song, you know, if you've got a band or something. Right there's some lyrics. Job 7, 12, it says, Am I the sea or the monster of the deep that you put me under guard? 
26.12 says, By His power He churned up the sea. By His wisdom He cut Rahab to pieces. By His breath the skies became fair. His hand pierced the gliding serpent. Why did I read all that? I'm reading that to say they had a worldview back then that we don't really have. They believed that there were gods, lowercase g, at work. And these gods were the powers of darkness. What we would refer to them as now are demonic principalities. Fallen angels that have laid claim to all of humanity and all of the earth and say, we're going to try to destroy this thing and we're going to run amok and we're going to try to get worship from human beings. But see, God breaks through and they start writing songs in the Old Testament when God splits the sea and brings them over. It's not that He's just the, the, the Creator over the waters, but He is defeating the powers of darkness that they believe to be controlling the waters. And so when he broke in, he was breaking into the earth and he was saying, you want to know something? You guys think you're gods? I am creator God, Yahweh. And ultimately, I am the greater power. And I'm the one that breaks in among you to defeat these demonic powers that have laid claim to humanity and brought sin and sickness and death into the world. And you see this foreshadowing happening, man. I love it when you start to read it in the Old Testament because you see that this thing that we've been born into is a warfare. Now notice, if you go into the Old Testament from the front to the back of the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, there are battles going on. You don't see a whole lot about Satan. A couple of times it mentions him. You see some angels breaking in and there being wars in the Spirit and all of these things going on. But, all of it, but, but, but there's nothing that changes. Sin runs, runs rampant. There's wars. There's hatred, there's death, there's plagues, there's all the normal things, and still no serpent crusher has showed up after thousands of years. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this boy in Nazareth grows up, and at the age of 30, he declares that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. He shows up in temples, and all of a sudden, demons start crying out. And they say, we know who you are. They've been around the whole time. They knew that promise. They were waiting on that promise because they were scared to death of that promise. And when he shows up, he confronts the powers of darkness head on. And all of this begins to break out all of a sudden right in the middle of it. And Jesus gives this talking snake from Genesis 3 a name. He makes it personal. And his name, we know, we, we believe to know that he was Lucifer, the archangel that was fallen because of his own rebellion against God. And he led one third of the angels astray. And then they laid claim to humanity, right? And so when Jesus breaks in, he calls him Satan, which is the accuser, the adversary, the opponent. Now notice some things that Jesus says about Satan. This is very important to our worldview. John 8, Jesus says, The devil was a murderer from the beginning. And most scholars would say that he's even talking about far before the Garden of Eden. He's talking about what he did in the cosmic war, in the battle in the heavenlies, whenever he led angels astray. And it was from the beginning that we even goes beyond us. And he says, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In John 12, 31, Jesus says three times something very unique about Satan. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world, and now the prince of this world will be driven out. Isn't that interesting that Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world? 
1430, he says, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming and he has no hold over me. Notice this. Satan had a hold over every human being that ever entered into humanity because they were under the head of Adam. And when they took flesh and blood on, sin was in their blood. It was in their veins. And he knew that he had a hold over every human being because of the disobedience of Adam. But Jesus says, he's got no hold over me. I'm different. I'm not born of Adam. I'm born of the seed of the woman. I, it was a virgin birth. My heavenly Father has sinless blood. In John 16, 11, he says, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. And why is that important? It's important because Jesus is helping us understand who Satan really is. The word prince there was a, was a Greek word also used like in the Roman government. And it literally, it was archon. And it means the highest official of a political power in a given region. He was saying that if you look at the powers in this world, Satan has the highest official power over the system of this world. Now, Jesus knew and understand that ultimately creator God, Yahweh, was sovereign over all. He was all powerful. And in one sense, he was in control. But notice what Jesus and what Satan says to Jesus in three out of the four Gospels. In Luke chapter four, it says that the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, notice what Satan says to Jesus. I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. Satan tells Jesus, the Creator, this world has been given to me. The kingdoms of this world have been given to me. Well, who gave it to him? Adam gave it to him in the garden. He forfeited his authority by believing his lie. And he said, look, you bow down and worship me. I can give it to whoever I want to. Now, this is what's interesting is that Satan does. Jesus does rebuke Satan, but he does not deny his claim that he has authority over the kingdoms. And this is very interesting because now you go into the New Testament and in 1 John 5, 19, it says, we know that we are the children of God. And notice this, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now let this reframe your mindset because anytime evil happens, anytime something bad happens, what do we say to make us feel better about, about life? We say God is in control. And you know what? We say the right thing because God is in control. But what he's saying is that God is not in control in the way that you think he's in control. Because most of what you see in the world, you actually see not as God's control, but you see as satanic control, releasing sin, sickness, suffering, and death into the world. And he says, this whole world system, it is under the control. And these people are under the control of the evil one. But we now are the children of God, purchased out of this world system, crucified to this world system, brought into the kingdom of God. Amen. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age, he calls Satan the God of this age, who has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so here's the thing. What I'm trying to lay down for you is that when Jesus shows up on the scene, the one thing that he realizes is that he is on a mission as one of cosmic warfare against evil. He's not just coming to pay your penalty. And one thing that he is doing is he is paying your penalty so that you can be reconciled to the Father. But that's not the only thing he's doing. He is engaging the highest power of darkness to confront evil at its source. Right. And this is what's going on when he shows up. 
You see the powers of darkness and the power of light going at it. And when Peter preaches, he says in Acts 10, you know what happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And notice what He did. He went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. When Jesus confronts evil, He confronts the one from whom evil originates. And when Jesus heals the sick, He does that as an act of warfare against the cosmic entities. When He raises the dead, He is doing that as, a, as an act of warfare against Satan who believes in this moment that He has the power over death. And so in 1 John 3.8... Man, I know I've read a lot of scriptures. It's been good with y'all. We're having a Bible study this Easter. Amen. 1 John 3, 8, it says, The one who does what is sinful or practices sin is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Why did He appear? He appeared to pay the penalty for our sins. But here Scripture says specifically He appeared to destroy the devil's work. It doesn't get more all-inclusive than that. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray, Hey, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from this evil one, this one that has brought sin and suffering. Because when you talk about the devil's work, what are you talking about? A lot of times the devil's work we actually attribute to God and God being in control. But see, if you look at the devil's work, there's about four specific categories if you break it down. The devil's work is sin. The devil's work is sickness and suffering. The devil's work is loss and destruction. And the devil's work is death. And Jesus' work is life and life more abundantly. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. When you see those things, you don't see God's work. You see the devil's work whom Jesus has come up to overthrow and say, this stuff is not going to rule and reign anymore. I've come to defeat this stuff. I've come to destroy the devil's work. And so why does this even matter? Because Jesus has come to crush the serpent's head. But here's the thing. How does He even do that? What's that even mean, Clay? You say Jesus crushes the serpent's head. What's that mean? How does He do that? But also, what's it mean when it says that He strikes the, ser that, that the serpent actually strikes His heel? So Good Friday, three days before Easter Sunday, what happens? Satan realizes he's in a bind, man. And so he says, you know what? Maybe we should do... He gets all the demon principalities together and he begins to move and he's hanging around. You watch The Passion of the Christ. You got that one little dude holding a baby walking around. You ever seen that, y'all? You know what I'm talking about? And so he's just all, he's squirreling around, scheming, trying to figure out what to do. And he, Jesus is toppling Satan's kingdom day after day. Satan is worried sick. He don't know what's going to happen. He says, last ditch effort, boys. I don't know what we can do with this guy. But one thing I know is every, every time we've had a problem with somebody before, we just killed him. And we brought it to an end, so we need to kill this man as well. And so he stirred up the religious and the political leaders and they took him up Golgotha, up Golgotha's hill on Calvary. And they hung Jesus on the cross there at about 9 a.m. And about noon, it got so dark over the face of the earth that historians in other places of the world wrote about it. They're casting lots for his garments. He's hung between two criminals. And about the ninth hour, he says, it is finished while he's hanging on the cross. There's a great earthquake and the veil down in the 
temple down there in the bottom, tore from top to bottom as if to say, where you didn't have access to God before, now you have access to the living God and you can come in and worship freely because it has been finished. And Jesus descends into the lower parts of the earth and preaches to the ones that have gone on before us. He goes into paradise, which was there then. And He preaches to the spirits that are in prison. And He goes down there for a specific reason because He needs to enter into death. But here's what I want you to know. While he's down there, they're taking his body off of the cross and his mother's weeping at the bottom. And they clean him up and rigor mortis is set in, so they're trying to get his arms back down. They're cleaning him up. Blood's everywhere. They put embalming spices and they get him ready and they have a tomb from Joseph of Arimathea and they take him to the tomb and the Roman leaders are discussing this and they go to Pilate and Pilate says, look, this guy said, it's reported that he's going to die and raise after three days. I want you to send guards down there. I want you to guard that tomb and I want you to put a Roman seal on that thing so that if anybody breaks it, they'll know. They'll be put to death as well. We got to make sure this guy doesn't try to pull something or somebody else try to pull something. Seal that tomb. And here's the story, Matthew 28. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Just know, Imagine that angel. He is just chilling at that point. Like he is excited. <laughs> It's just sitting on, on a stone. Yep, he did it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as He said. Come and see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see Him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell His disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. That's what I'd have said. <laughs> they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. See, this isn't just the centerpiece of the Bible. This is the fulcrum of all of human history. It's at this point that everything changes. It's at this point that we are reconciled back to God. It's at this point where our sins are forgiven. It's at this point where we don't live like the rest of the world that just think we die and we cease to exist. It's at this point that we know there's a hope, there's a reason for this life here. As painful and as full of suffering and, and as short as it may be, we have a living hope that there's something beyond the grave. And it's everything turns on its head in this moment. And here's the thing. When we preach and when we talk about this stuff growing up, you always hear, man, Jesus died for your sins. If you told me that when I was a little boy, I'd say, I have no idea what that means. What are you talking about? And Jesus dying for your sins, He did that. He did that on the cross. And when He raised from the dead, that's what justifies you. But see, there's more going on than just there. Because in the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's about five things that I want to say that God does. One of the things that He does is God reveals. God reveals in the death and resurrection of Jesus His character and His nature that He would rather die for His enemies than be without them. He reveals the love of God at the cross. 
God restores because He saw a world that had said, hey God, we don't really want You. We would like to be our own gods and choose for ourselves what's right and wrong and make decisions for our own life. We'd appreciate it if you just butt out, bro. And He sees the sin and the brokenness and all of the obstacles and He says, rather than let their sin take full control of them and them suffer the full consequences of a living hell here and an eternal there hell in the afterlife, instead of that, He says, I'm going to absorb all their sin and I'm going to forgive them in it so that they can live with me. He restores and He forgives. He takes all of our failures, everything that you've done, everything that you failed to do, and He says in this moment, I'm going to step in your place and take your penalty so that you can be washed in the blood of Jesus and forgiven forever. And then fourthly, God enters death and overthrows it. He enters death and overthrows it. Now this is what I love because you know Jesus raised some people from the dead. I've heard stories about people being raised from the dead. But you know that even the people that Jesus raised from the dead, they died again? Like Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he died several years later, right? Because there's a difference between being revived or raised from the dead and then being resurrected. When you're you're raised from the dead or you're revived, you just come back into this natural body and you get your heart beats for another 10 years maybe or whatever, but then you die again. But when you are resurrected and you experience the resurrection that is in Jesus Christ, you never experience death again because you are given a glorified body that is free from sin and sickness and ultimately death. It never happens again. There's a difference there. But he enters into death, something that could not hold him because the wages of sin was death. Well, guess what? You're looking at a man who never sinned. But he said, I'm going to take on flesh. I'm going to enter into it so that I can blow it up from the inside. And I'm going to get the keys back from death, hell, and the grave. He enters death and he overthrows it. And then fifthly, all of these things... If you look at the early church, they believed all of those things that I just said, but they believed that all of it really was a a, a second aspect or or, or a a different aspect of really the point that God destroys the works of the devil. In Paul, in Acts, Paul says this in chapter 26, when Jesus tells him to go preach, he says, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus is the long-promised snake-defeating king. And here's what we know. Satan did strike Jesus' heel, didn't he? Satan gets all of his boys together. You know that the Scripture actually says that had the principalities and powers, which is Satan and his demonic powers, had they have known what was going to take place on that cross, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. They would have said, boy, he he is tearing up Jack down here, but we're going to be better off if we let him live till he's about 300 years old. Because when he dies, there's going to be something unleashed throughout all of human history. And that blood is going to have the power to impact every single thing that has ever been done on this earth. And they would not have done it, but they thought, man, we need to kill him. And on that cross, he's humiliated, he's rejected, he's beaten, he's bleeding. They got the crown of thorns on his head. And in that moment, Satan is striking his heel. But in that same moment, that heel is coming down and dealing a death blow to his head right in one fell swoop all at the same time. And it's a beautiful thing because that promise in Genesis 3.15 thousands of years ago comes 
to its climax at the cross. And Satan knows it, but he's just hoping that somehow he stays down in the grave. But on that third day, there ain't nothing that can hold him. And he raises up out of the ground saying, I have gotten the keys of hell, death, and the grave. And no longer do these things hold you anymore. In Hebrews 2, here's what it says, verse 14 and 15. Since the children, you and I, have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity. Why? What's one of the reasons He took on flesh and blood? So that by His death, He might break the power of Him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. I remember the first time I read that, I said, man, the devil holds the power of death? I thought God was the one killing people. You know what I'm talking about? He says, no, Satan was the one who held the power of death and he was enslaving people with it. And it says, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. How many of you, I talk to people all the time, man, their greatest fear, they're afraid of dying, afraid of losing their loved ones. And and here's the thing, even though we know Jesus... And even though we believe what I'm preaching as Christians, maybe if you're not here, if you're here this morning, you don't believe in that. It's a possibility. Some people don't believe in this. And I I wonder, like, what kind of hope do you have if you don't believe this? But even when we do believe it, we fear losing our loved ones, don't we? And it's really just, it really just signifies and points to the fact that this isn't what we were designed for. It's why death hurts so bad. It's why sickness scares us so much. Because we hate death. And the Bible actually says that death is an enemy of God. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And here's the thing, every single one of us are going to experience this, but it says that He wants you free from the fear of death. Because Jesus, when He enters into death and He is risen from the dead, what He does is He takes your greatest fear and your greatest experience or your worst experience and He turns it into your greatest point of transformation. He makes death our servant because death is that which is going to take us to Jesus. He flips everything up on its head. He said, you know this beast, this monster that once said it had power over you and tried to inflict so much fear in you. You see now and you believe that I defeated it. I am risen from the dead. And that gives you the hope and the promise of a new creation that your lost loved ones in Christ that have went on before you, a day is coming when the trumpet's going to sound. And their dead bodies are going to come up out of the grave and nothing is going to be able to hold them. And it's not just that we're going to heaven. Heaven is coming down to earth. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and we're going to rule and reign here on a perfect world that is designed and created by God. And that serpent is going to be chained up forevermore in the lake of fire. And man, that's going to be a good time. And we're waiting. We're kind of all in this in-between. And that's, I think that's my question. Like if I'm, if I'm hearing this message, my question is, is if, if Jesus really crushed the serpent's head on the cross and in His resurrection, then why is the world still in the shape that it's in? Why, why do I watch the news and wars are breaking out and people are flying missiles from place to place and I hear about sex trafficking and I hear about people down the road that are abusing their kids kids that ain't got food to eat all over the world and people just falling I mean I mean spiritual leaders falling making terrible decisions sin running rampant all kinds of evil in the world why is it that these things are still going on and people are still dying not only that good people at young ages and you're saying that just doesn't seem like he dealt a death blow it doesn't seem like he crushed the serpent's head and the best way I think to explain this is 
in World War II, there were two days that they kind of talked about. They talked about D-Day and they talked about V-Day. And D-Day was June 4th, 1944, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy in France. And they won such a decisive victory on that day that they said, man, this really is the point that the war ended. But yet they fought for another entire year before the war came to an end. And here's how Greg Boyd says it. He says, in the same way, Christ in principle defeated the powers with the unsurpassable love He unleashed through His incarnation, life, ministry, death, and resurrection. D-Day has been fought and won, but we are still waiting for V-Day. And in the meantime, there are many important battles to fight. In fact, sometimes an enemy fights the hardest when they know their doom is certain. And sometimes you all get saved because you realize that D-Day has been won on the cross and you become a Christian and you think things are going to get easier only to find out that the devil turns up the heat on your hind end. And you're thinking, man, is this really worth it? I thought if I got saved, thing. listen, when you get saved, you're just now entering into the battle, my friends. Because Jesus is saying, I've gotten the authority and I've given you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if Satan is saying, this is my territory, I'm telling you as a child of God to advance and take that territory in the name of Jesus Christ because I have stripped him of his power and I've given you my Holy Spirit and I'm telling you to carry out the work in destroying the works of the devil in the here and the now. One of these days he's going to be chained up. Right now he has just been bound to some degree. But you've got to enforce that victory. And we're waiting for this V-Day. We're waiting for the full victory to be imposed. You know, in prisons pre-1960 when they were on death row, when men would go walking down the halls, they would shout out, dead man walking, dead man walking. And the reality is, is a lot of times when they were on death row, they'd be there for years sometimes waiting on their day. And the point being is they could live there for another 10 years, but in principle, they were a dead man walking. And Satan's still going to run rampant. He's going to mess with your life. He's going to try to get you to fall away from God. He's going to try to get you to fall into temptation and make all kinds of terrible decisions and destroy your family. He's going to try to do all those things. But do you know that that man walking, that spirit that is walking around is a dead man walking? His power has been taken from him. And Jesus is inviting you to step into this place where we realize we don't fight without purpose. We don't fight as people who are weak and overpowered. Jesus has stripped the power of the enemy. He has crushed the serpent's head. On Easter Sunday, it's the day that we celebrate that Jesus lifted his foot up above the serpent and he dealt a death blow to his head. He has destroyed his power. And I know it's not fun to think about death. And when you do think about it, it's not something you can put on the calendar. You know what I mean? I, I don't know when I'm going. I, you don't know when you're going. We can't put it on the calendar. But here's the thing. If I look at every religion throughout human history, there's nothing like Christianity. And the reason that is true is because, for example, Buddha, his cremated body is spread all over Sri Lanka. Confucius, you can go to China and you can find his grave. The leader of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, his bones are in Illinois. Charles Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, you can go to Pittsburgh, you can find his grave. Muhammad, the leader of Islam, you can go to Saudi Arabia and Medina and you can find the place where he is buried. But if you go to Jerusalem, where they put Jesus in that tomb and you look inside, 
There is nobody there because he's not there. He is risen. There's nothing like Christianity because there's no other religion in human history that really dealt with the issue of death. Some people say, well, we'll be reincarnated or maybe our spirits will go somewhere. But what Jesus says is, no, the physical body has value. This earth has value. We're not going to float in space. I'm going to restore all things and make all things new. And I will make your body new. And sickness and death will no longer have a hold on you. And everything will be made right. And even though we're going through suffering and pain right now, because Jesus is risen, we can boldly declare that the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing in your life is never the last thing. The resurrection says that people say it all the time. Hey, it's Friday, but Sunday is coming. The resurrection is coming. All of these things are going to be made right. And every unkind word spoken, every injustice, every addiction, every genocide, every news broadcast of a child being stolen and taken away, every hurricane and tsunami, every tornado that has torn a house down, every act of abuse and neglect and rape and murder, all of those things will be dealt with, done away with, and made right when Jesus returns. And see, the, the great hope of, of Easter is the fact that when God saw us in our condition, He didn't just leave us in it. He saw us in it. He entered into it. And He did something about it. And now He offers us this hope, this salvation. And to everyone, He extends it freely. He says, anyone who, who desires, come and drink from the water of life. Come and receive this salvation. Receive forgiveness. Receive restoration to the Father. Receive eternal life so that you don't have to worry about this issue of death anymore. Receive freedom from the fear of death and know that I have destroyed the works of the devil and I can destroy them in your life here and now. And that's good news, folks. So as we think about this, I just want you to bow your heads for a moment. I want you to consider the ramifications of this reality because many of you in here you 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 would claim to say man I know, I know Jesus and I know this reality and for you what this should do is just bring you into a point of celebration we say man I thank God that you did this for me Jesus that you've given me a hope beyond the grave that no matter what I go through there's a hope and a promise for the future but Lord we're thankful that you dealt a death blow to Satan and to his power but if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as an act of faith what I want to ask you to do it's just simply take a move toward Jesus in this moment and say, I don't know Him. I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven of my sins. I need to have this hope of eternal life. It's, if that's you as an act of faith, I'm going to ask you right now just to raise your hand as an act of faith. Anybody in the building whatsoever? Anybody? Praise God. Praise God. I see one. Anybody? And you know what? The Scripture says that the Lord would leave the 99 just to go after the one. And so I want us all to pray right now. Let's just pray. Let's come to the Lord. Father, we believe that you died on the cross for our sins. And Lord Jesus, you defeated Satan on the cross and his power over our lives. And so we confess our sin right now. We ask you, Lord, to forgive us and wash us in your blood. And we renounce Satan. And we declare that we're moving from the power of darkness into the power of God right now. Into your kingdom, God. And so, Lord, we confess that you are Lord over all creation. 
that you have defeated evil, that you have defeated sin, that you have defeated death. And so, Lord, we give you our lives right now afresh. We surrender to you, Jesus. We ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit, God, and restore our relationship to you. Holy Spirit, we want you to draw near to us and fill us, God, so that we can understand the reality of what you've done for us in a greater way than ever before. Lord, we yield to you. We give you our lives the same way that you gave yours for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things, and amen. amen.